HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Somerset County Tourism. Hear stories from local brewers and distillers from the New Jersey Sip and See Trail on episode 647 of Beer Sessions Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts. is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Jackie Rowell. This series is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food cities. Gastronomica's fall 2022 issue, 22.3, now available online, explores themes of transformation, adaptation, and preservation. Join us as we talk with authors over the coming weeks. Our guest this week is Matthew Maduri, author of Immigrant Birds, Serbian-style fried chicken in the Magic City. Matthew, thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Hi, Jackie. Thank you for having me. Can you briefly share with listeners what you do and where you're based? Uh, Well, I have an MFA in creative writing, but my day-to-day job is uh, I develop corporate training and e-learning for manufacturing. Uh, I've taught college writing for the last 10 years, both full-time and as an adjunct. And I am located in Kent, Ohio, which is in Northeast Ohio. And tell us a little bit about uh, some of the, some of the writing that you've done um, previously. You've written for Gastronomica before as well. I have. Um, Let's see, the last piece that I had in Gastronomica was about oyster dressing. It was a dish that my grandmother had made when we were little kids. And then when she passed away, I kind of got a little obsessed with it. Like, why did she make it? Where did it come from? And so I kind of went on this investigation through different means, through different relatives, uh, to different places where she had worked to try to figure out the root or the origin story of this. Uh, I also write a lot of uh, fiction uh, that tends to be humorous or more satirical. Uh, and yeah, that's that's pretty much it. 
And how did you come to this particular piece, uh, Immigrant Birds? Your newest piece in Gastronomica looks at the chicken house in what you call the magic city. Uh, So what is the magic city? Where is the magic city? And how did you come to tell this story about it? Yeah, so the magic city is the nickname for uh, a town in Ohio called Barberton. And it was given that nickname really early on. Uh, The town, uh, I think it began in 1891. It was a planned town, but because the population increased exponentially in the the first couple years, uh, mainly because of the industry that was there and all of the jobs that were being created, they thought that it just kind of, there was some magical formula or that just doubled or tripled or whatever overnight. So they, they gave it that name, the magic city. Uh, what were some of the key industries at the time? There was a lot of glass making, uh, OC Barber, who was the founder of the town had the diamond match company, which is still around to this day. So it was, it was really matches. It was a lot of manufacturing, um, glass, steel, and then, of course, we had rubber in Akron very close by. But, yeah. And what is the rough population of Barberton now? I believe it's right around 30,000. But, you know, the town began, it was just kind of uh, sparsely populated with some, some farms. It, it then became like a... I would say like 1200 and then it, it soon grew to about 20,000 within like within 15 years, which is kind of a lot for that time. Quite significant. Yeah. 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 And so how did you come to be uh, interested in, in the magic city and this particular story about um, what's known as Barberton chicken? I guess technically I have been eating Barberton chicken most of my life, my parents tell me they took took us to White House Chicken, which is one of the chicken houses in Barberton. I don't necessarily remember that because at that time, you know, every Sunday it would be a chicken dinner at some place, and so that kind of all just gets wrapped together in my in my mind. But I know that the first time that I vividly ate Barberton chicken was how I start the piece with an anecdote about going with an old girlfriend in high school and and expecting one thing and being very pleasantly surprised uh, by what I had. And what was it that, that was so surprising? This was about 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, and I, I really... Um, I really like the narration of the piece in the introduction where um, you, you draw upon the memory and tie, tie it into a bigger story about Barberton um, and its past and also its future. So um, what was it that was so surprising about that experience? Well, I think that most people go into fried chicken thinking they're going to have Southern style fried chicken, which is what we're used to at most fast food restaurants. Uh, it's, it's what most pizzerias and sit-down restaurants tend to have. It's kind of peppery. uh, There's a little spice to it. It's fried in oil. But what I had was chicken that didn't have all of that seasoning, and it had sort of a chewy, crispy crust to it. Um, 
there was a lot of flavor, a lot of juice. It wasn't what we're typically used to. But then as I bring up the hot sauce, I mean, if you go to- I was going to gonna say, tell me about the hot sauce. <laughs> barbecue chicken, any of the barbecue chicken uh, restaurants, you absolutely have to have the chicken and the hot sauce. I mean, the sides, you can choose whatever you're into, but those two are a must. And together, it, it just makes like the whole experience. The hot sauce is, depending on which one you go to, it is a mixture of stewed tomatoes, onions, and some type of hot pepper, like a Hungarian wax pepper or a banana pepper. Um, and it's stewed with tomato sauce and there's rice in it and some places it's a little bit more like soup and other places it's a little thicker but it's it's like you take a bite of chicken and you take a bite of the hot sauce and it's just the perfect combination and is there a common recipe for the chicken and also for the hot sauce how do you do you have any sense of how um this developed over time and and how the the tradition um, kind of became established. I know that the owners of Belgrade's, which is the original uh, Barberton Chicken House, uh, they said that it came from their grandmother's recipe, which came from you know previous generations. The chicken, uh, the way that they do it, and they have done this since they opened. Uh, from from what I've gathered, uh, the chicken is fresh. It's never frozen. They tend to use younger birds that are raised locally. The chicken, again, does not have any sort of seasonings other than salt. So they salt the chicken, and then they dredge it in flour uh, and egg wash, and then breadcrumbs, and that sits. And then they fry it at a very low heat for about 20 minutes in lard. And that is really what gives the the flavor and the consistency of the the breading. That's why you get that that sort of chewy inner part and that crispy outer part. It is a sort of bronzish color, and it's very juicy and it stays hot for a long time. And is this a dish that, I mean, obviously it was a centerpiece of the Barberton Chicken House experience. Uh, was it primarily made in the public um, public dining house, or do you know if it was also made within homes? So from, let's see, the, the daughter of the originator, I believe uh, her name is Sophia Papage, she tells the story that and this is like the, the legend, the local Barberton legend, which um, the, the grandmother, Smoka Topowski, was cooking this chicken uh, or this dinner in the back room for her family. The, at that time, they ran a small like sandwich and soup shop, and uh, the people that were there could smell what they were cooking uh, in the back. So at this time, it was just a dish that people had in their home, especially those uh, Serbian or Eastern European uh, immigrants. That was just a regular dinner for them. But uh, the customer came back and, and asked, like, what were they cooking? And would they mind making that for them? And so they did. And apparently it took off. And so much so that 
they were able to, uh, let's see, buy uh, the farm that they had been renting and, and other, other workers that work for them decided that they would go out on their own and start chicken houses. And so Belgrade's was the first chicken house to start up in Barberton. Um, and then there was, uh, you know, several others that started. So th- it sounds like this formed part of a, a broader network of social and cultural institutions, particularly for um, immigrant families um, who had recently immigrated from, from Serbia. Um, who, who was the primary customer base and, and how did that develop over time? I believe that when they had begun, and granted this was a long time ago, this was during like the 1930s, the customer base was just anyone in town. But when they started serving up the the chicken and the hot sauce, uh, they had sort of a mix of, uh, I guess you could say, like Anglo-Americans, but also uh, a lot of Eastern European I mean, at at that time, the way that they gathered were different social clubs. I mean, if you whatever your ethnic background was as an immigrant, I mean, I have or had two Italian grandparents, and what they tended to do when you know they immigrated here was become part of like an Italian club, and so just like them, the there was the Serbian club, the Slovenian club. Um, the Hungarian club. And, and so those people, yes, they had those institutions that they could spend time together, uh, speak to each other in their native language, but then they could also go to a place like Belgrade gardens and have a meal that they recognized that felt like home, like a comfort food, and they could do it together, you know, while dining out. Mm-hmm. And how how have I mean? There's been change, obviously, um, over the last over the last decades, and and I do have some questions about that. But I'm wondering about preservation. So, how has the culture of the Barberton Chicken House been preserved? Um, are there are there cookbooks? Are there um, are there stories um, that have been kind of shared within the broader within the community, but also more broadly? Yeah. I- there's definitely a couple ways of of seeing this, I guess, phenomena. Locally, if you live in Barberton, it that is just a staple that you have, regardless of your your background. I mean, Barberton chicken has always been a sort of Sunday dinner type place. Uh, I believe one of their busiest days of the year, and this is across the board at all the chicken houses is mother's day. And, you know, that that's one way that I guess we can see it preserved is that people traditionally go there at certain times. Yeah, exactly. And uh, also, you know, if, if you're from Barberton, you know, this, if you're not from Barberton and you've heard of it, you, you know, that it's a thing. Um, and if you've eaten there, it's it's almost like being part of a club, which kind of sounds like a little silly, but it's it's that that pride of this is a very distinct regional dish. Um, you may not know the background of it, 
but this is sort of like our thing. And maybe on a more national level, there's been a lot of different food outlets that continue to write about Barberton chicken every time fried chicken comes up. Uh, I almost always see Belgrade's in there. Um, I know a lot of different food writers. John T. Edge has written about it. Michael Simon showcased them on uh, an older show called Food Feuds that he had. I know the Stearns uh, have written about Barberton chicken quite a bit. And even more recently, um, on the show Road Food, they had dedicated uh, an episode to Barberton chicken. So there's something about this food that it's it's not just average fried chicken. It's it's put in its own separate category, and it continues to get attention, um, both locally and nationally. Thank you, Matthew. I have a follow-up question, but first we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back in just a moment. I'm Jimmy Carboni, host of Beer Sessions Radio on HRN. I recently hosted a live podcasting event with local beer and spirits makers from beautiful Somerset County, New Jersey. We spoke on the farm that is home to Flounder Brewery and Belmar Distillery, one of the most beautiful stops along the Sip and See Craft Beverage Trail. To me, those two worlds, brewery and distillery, are extremely complementing businesses, especially in a unique location like this. So it immediately helped this become a destination to have a great experience, whether it's the beer atmosphere we've got going here in the old barns or the great experience you can have in there with these incredible cocktails that are created there. It's complementary to each other. You can have two completely different experiences all within a 10-foot walk from each other. Before the event, I was able to tour the area and see the historic Bridge Tender's house along the serene DNR Canal, walk the bike and hiking trails, and take in the lush farmland. Then we settled into the centuries-old Dutch barn turned brewery for a lively discussion. It was always important for us to create our space, our livelihood that we want to share with everybody else, of being a community-centric location. It is what makes us a brewery in this state different from a barn or restaurant. Um, you know, we're obviously family-friendly here. Um, we have a lot of different groups that have their meetings here during the week. We just really want to become a community hub. You can listen to this episode of Beer Sessions Radio, available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again to Somerset County Tourism for supporting this episode. Learn more about the Sip and See Passport Program at visitsomersetnj.org. That's visit visitsomersetnj.org. And we're back. This is Gastronomica on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jackie Rowell talking with Matthew Maduri about his article, Immigrant Birds, Serbian-Style Fried Chicken in the Magic City, published in Gastronomica's newest issue, 22.3. Matthew, I wanted to quickly read a passage from your piece um, to kind of preface my next question about the connection between local and national and global. So you write, in the 1970s, during the golden age of fried chicken, Barberton Chicken Houses collectively sold 30,000 chicken dinners a week. 
a week, I will add. Um, so lines of people, you write, poured out of the doors of each restaurant, especially on Sunday after church. And the restaurants airmailed fried chicken all over the United States and shipped it overseas to Barbertonians stationed in Vietnam. With such ravenous poultry consumption, Barberton declared itself the, quote, fried chicken capital of the world, end quote, a nickname most Southerners likely scoffed at. No matter, it was an exciting time to own a chicken house in Barberton. So this was the 1970s. So I'm struck here by how deeply embedded the chicken house was in the town's local identity. And we see the chicken moving to other places across the U.S., the the Barberton chicken, Um, but always from Barberton. So none of the chicken houses were ever franchised. Is that right? They were never transformed into fast food. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, they they weren't ever transformed into fast food. Although I know that White House at one point was attempting franchises, and you know they they have multiple locations, but I believe they're all under ownership of of the same same person, uh, Brian Canale, who also owns Hopkin Gardens, and there have been a couple restaurants that have tried to serve their version of Barberton chicken and they just don't get it right. And I think that's why it doesn't, it doesn't really take off. Um, part of it again is that process that they have. I mean, if you go to any one of the chicken houses that's dine-in, uh, you know that you're waiting at least 20 minutes to get this chicken because they refuse to fry it ahead of time and put it under a light, you know, there or a heat lamp. They are going to cook it to order. So you get there, you sit down, you order, and then at least twenty minutes later, you're going to be getting something. So it's not it's not the type of dining dining experience where you can, I guess, commodify it and and make it. Um, Oh, what's the word? Make it quick and easy. And it sounds like the community connection was really at the heart of the experience, especially given its history as a social and cultural institution locally. Um, oh, yeah. When it first started. Yeah, absolutely. And even to this day, I mean, the way that now I don't know if all the owners live in Barberton, but I know that uh, one specifically, uh, Brian Canale, he is the again the owner of White House and Hopkin Gardens and he is very much invested in in this community and so you know all the chicken jokes aside like because he is so invested uh, and wants to give back and wants to make sure that the schools are good that the um, neighborhoods are are being not just kept up but improved upon making sure that the infrastructure of the city is is i guess calling people you know to come visit it 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 shows uh the kind of energy he puts into it and how people react and and how they service his his chicken houses and so tell me about the institution of barberton chicken house um uh, now, um, what? How has the city of Barberton changed over time, and how have the dishes and the menus of the chicken houses changed over time, or have they? I think that 
you know, it's, it's a long process when you like take a step back and look at what they've done. The chicken houses visually have almost all remained the same with, you know, a, a small remodeling here, a small expansion there, you know, every couple of years they might change a menu item. Uh, but what you're looking at is a menu that stays pretty much the same. The regular chicken dinner will always be on the menu, and that is, you know, four pieces of chicken, french fries, hot sauce, and coleslaw. Uh, there has been, let's say, maybe some identity issues in the past uh, because the way Barberton has been, you, you know, it was this manufacturing hub and it offered a lot to people and it was almost like a self-sustaining community. I mean, that's kind of the way that it was, it was planned. Uh, the, the industry was put there by the, uh, the founder and they laid out the town right around this very pristine lake and the, the town was supposed to sustain itself. And then when industry left, it's like, well, what do we do now? How do we, how do we navigate this? And the chicken houses were always there because they had a, a dinner at a specific price. And yes, over the years, it's, it's uh, increased. But people knew that they could go there and get the same thing that they had had when times were good, um, when times were bad especially in the 80s and, uh, you know, kind of continuing into the 90s. But as, as Barberton is, is growing and trying to navigate, like, what they are at this point, I think a lot of post-industrial towns are doing that. A lot of towns that had an industry and a big manufacturing presence right around the Great Lakes have to kind of figure out, well, what are we going to do? We, we can't really go back to being this manufacturing hub because it's, it's just, it's not going to work out like it has in the past there, you know, with globalization and, and even if we look at the auto industry moving to, to EV or electronic vehicles, they have to change somehow. And, and so within this context of economic change and urban transformation, um, at this moment, how many, how many chicken houses, Barberton chicken houses remain? And have you seen new ones open? So they, the four main ones have, have remained. So that would be Belgrade Gardens, the original, Hoppakin Gardens, White House Chicken, and what used to be called Millich's Village Inn, now just the Village Inn. Those four remain. Belgrade's had a second location, but after you know, COVID pandemic, they just thought that it was a better idea to close that down and focus on their original restaurant. Uh, White House, its flagship uh, location which had been dining since I think 1950 became carry out. So they have three locations and they're all carry out. The village Inn has gone through multiple owners and they've tried to, 
I think what's interesting about the Village Inn, even though it's not located in Barberton, it's technically in Norton, which is just a town over, and it's just over that city line. They, the the new owner, uh, Mary Beers, uh, I mentioned that she has kind of tried to reverse engineer this. So she bought the place and figured out what ingredients she could use to give that chicken dish that she remembered eating at the Village Inn. Um, they've also added steaks, which is kind of mind-blowing, I think, to a lot of Barbertonians. <laughs> I was going to add about, ask about um, about that, about other other kinds of meat. <laughs> it, is, it is really funny because when you sit at any sort of restaurant, almost always, whether it's you or the other diners, bring up the food that they're serving at this place and maybe past experiences that you've had or how good it is or things that people need to try. And yeah, it's the same at any one of the chicken houses. We're talking about fried chicken. We're talking about, you know, little anecdotes that we have, but it was really funny to just sit down at the village in more recently and hear people talking about steaks and just thinking like it's the newest thing to come to like this place. It's like, it's, it's a steak. <laughs> and then within, so, so there have been changes to the menus in, in, in some of the, in some of the restaurants. Um, and then also to the downtown, you mentioned in your piece um, that there's been um, other arts organizations and galleries that have uh, popped up as well as um, breweries. So there is um, kind of uh, uh, kind of, uh, compatible kind of small businesses and organizations um, yeah. that, that it's it's kind of embedded with within the downtown of Barberton. Is that right? There's, yeah, there's definitely a push and a, a trend to be, I guess, more in that sort of contemporary culture of breweries and and galleries. I mean, that's something that we tend to see at. Uh, like in more progressive towns or, you know, for better or for worse in towns that, you know, have had some gentrification. Um, but the, the town seems more accepting of, of these like newer trends. And I think it's important when, when cities want to invest in their arts. I mean, that, that's an institution that, everybody can be a part of. Yes, sports is also one of those things that, that people can enjoy and do enjoy regardless of your uh, background, your socioeconomic status. But but the arts kind of pulls out something a little different and everyone can experience that. So, And what is your, um, your kind of hope for the future of, of the Barberton Chicken House? Um, where do you see, what, what do you see in its future? Maybe that's a difficult question to answer because, you know, your piece tracks so nicely with your own experiences, um, learning about the Barberton Chicken House embedded within a, a, a bigger um, history of migration and, and manufacturing um, and, and urban development. And then you, you end the piece um, with, I think, a reflection on placemaking and the place of heritage and kind of developing the, the future of uh, what you call Barberton's search for its identity. Um, do, you have any, do you have any thoughts on that before we wrap up? 
when it comes to the chicken houses, I would love to see them be there for another, you know, 50 years. I think it's possible uh, from a lot of, you know, interviews that I've, I've read. Um, people are, are kind of, kind of like sitting back in trepidation, wondering whether or not this type of institution that focuses on uh, a meal that takes a specific amount of time, takes a certain technique to make, they're not going to let quality suffer. Yes, they've switched to carry out. And I think a lot of businesses have, have had to do that. You know, the, the clientele just that a lot of people are, are comfortable with just getting takeout and eating at home now. And I, I think that they can still survive with, with that sort of uh, environment, but like most places, you, you kind of have to see what's going on with the culture and society and adjust accordingly as long as it doesn't make what you do you know suffer in, in some way. So I think it's I think it's definitely possible that we see the chicken houses for another you know several decades and they be a, a prominent part of, of Barberton as long as Barberton is there supporting them and knowing that this is one of the longest institutions or longest standing institutions in, in Barberton is the, the Serbian style fried chicken house. Thanks, Matthew. And I would like to ask if there's anything more you'd like to share with listeners, uh, as well as what you are working on next. What's your next piece that you're, that you're writing and where can listeners find it? Oh goodness. So I tend to be a generalist, and even though I love writing about food, uh, I'm kind of working on a project right now that is a series of collage essays about common American or co- common North American birds uh, and uh, our relationship to them. I think <laughs> during the start of the COVID 19 pandemic, I really got into bird watching, and I think a lot of people did that as well. And just understanding how people relate to birds and, and, and whatever that might be. I know one of the essays I did do about the morning dove uh, talks about foodways. And uh, that one was just recently put out by Permafrost Magazine. So I'm, I'm excited to have that one out. And again, it does talk about foodways. So uh, very relatable. Super. Thank you, Matthew, for joining us today. Listeners can read the full piece, Immigrant Birds, in Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. Over the coming weeks, we're talking with authors from our latest issue, 22.3, now available online. Join us next week for an episode on tastemakers and culinary design. And subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast feed on your favorite platform to stay updated on our newest episodes. The Gastronomica podcast is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.